Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Eric Nintrup, writer, filmmaker, and strategic education consultant. Today, Eric shares the role of AI in education, including the opportunities and challenges it presents. Eric also shares paradigm shifts that are already underway, the need for guidelines and guardrails to ensure ethical use of AI, and how AI can fundamentally change the way educators do their jobs. So from one Eric to another, welcome to the show, Eric. Really appreciate your time today. Looking forward to hearing your conversation about AI and really getting into your past and what you've been doing and what you're working on now. But before we get to that, can you talk about yourself a little bit and who should be paying attention today? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, My favorite subject. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) currently I'm a freelance uh, content producer, self-employed, solopreneur, however you want to frame it. But I have a roster of clients that I cycle through and special projects that come and go. Uh, And I'm in my third year of doing that after a five-year stint working as an account executive for a student information system. And prior to that, a five-year stint of being a frontline educator and administrator uh, here in central Indiana. That is the extent of my second career in education, which was preceded by my first career of being a multimedia writer and producer uh, in a completely different era of content. Um, I, like I specifically remember where I was when I discovered YouTube, and that feels like a, li- a lifetime ago, kind of scrolling through some of the early videos and, and having none of the culture or the pervasive idea that streaming video would be you know, as ubiquitous as, as it is today. My adult life has been spent in storytelling and figuring out better ways to capture and present for the sake of different outcomes, but primarily to educate and to learn. Yeah, so I that's that's sort of my background in a nutshell, Eric. And I, uh, I, 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 even as a classroom English teacher, brought those skills to the forefront and turned everything into a project-based learning um, sort of curriculum or uh, whenever I could. So yeah, in, in the present, uh, still doing the same. Just I feel as though I'm the guy that keeps moving seats in the stadium to get a different perspective on the ball game. But the gist of it has stayed very much the same, while uh, paradigm shifts have have been occurring in the background. And uh, yeah, t- today we are certainly in the midst of one. We've, we're all straddling a, a paradigm shift, uh, tectonic plate sort of boundary with regards to how artificial intelligence has impacted the mainstream and is titrating itself into education. Mm-hmm. And what you said there is actually pretty important. You had mentioned and, and described an analogy of sitting in different spots in the stadium to watch the same game. What's so interesting about that is you, because you have different perspective, you have more knowledge from which to, to reference in the future, right? And, and you described this, you know, your background is varied in multitude of ways. I'll go through this pretty quickly. So former teacher, you're an administrator, owner of a video production company, creative director, storyteller, consultant, and author. And by the way, you help your brother with his brewing company as well. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my one, my, my release valve from, from all other things that are... Uh, are common is helping my brother sell beer. I'm super proud of him. And it's uh, not, not being a father myself. I look at this as my way to contribute to my niece and nephew's uh, college fund and uh, support my brother's retirement plan in some way, shape or form while earning a commission selling sons. Yeah. And what's interesting. So all of those, except for the, the brewery, obviously revolve around education. What, what is it about education that keeps bringing you back in? you know, arrested development, I suppose. <laughs> I just, I, uh, like one buddy of mine said, Hey, I haven't, you know, I, I've only known school since I was five as you know, and he's a couple years older than me. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting way to look at it, that he went from being a student into, you know, being an educator. Um, I had a stint in between and, uh, one thing led to another and I ended up coming to education in 2005, but it took me I don't remember five to six years to turn that into a career shift, and you know necessity is the uh, the mother of invention in in so many ways, shapes, and forms. And what what keeps me invested in education is just sort of a the way I was raised. I've got a very mission centric perspective, and I want my I want my livelihood to be purposeful. I mean, nobody doesn't, but particularly when I 
when I realized education, I was a latecomer to realizing education as a profession would be a great idea. Um, and the moment that I switched from working in like corporate media and storytelling to specifically working as a teacher, um, I felt as though I just realized I was paddling the canoe upstream the entirety of my adult life up to that point. And it's the moment I, I accepted education as a vocation, um, it felt as though I was using the current to my advantage. It just felt as though I'd found my place. Mm-hmm. I'm curious then. So you, you left after that, right? So you went educator, left, came back to be an educator again, and now you're back yeah. doing your own thing. What, what was kind of going on for you in your experience? So uh, I ended up into education as a, like I treated it like in a, any other gig um, back in my first bout of self-employment. One project led to another, and I was helping produce video to raise funds for the Center for Teaching and Learning down in Columbus, Indiana, which I do believe is still active and alive. But that process involved me uh, interviewing, putting in front of the camera and microphone, the who's who in Bartholomew County, Indiana, to see uh, this project bridge the gap between some of the post-secondary options that are available in that town. The relationships that I formed there turned into an invitation to go back to my own high school and teach in the the, the CTE program there. And I, I said, well, hey, I'm not a teacher. I'm just, uh, you know, this isn't what I do. And I, I said no three times. And eventually I said yes to it being a, a, a part-time gig. It started to get in the way of the rest of operating my business and earning enough to stay afloat back then. And so I had to step away after a semester of teaching. But boy, I was bitten by the bug at that point, Eric. I had to figure out what this was. And it just stayed in the back of my mind for a really long time until I just felt like I was ready for a change of scenery after two stints as uh, full-time creative directors for two of my former clients. So I, I, I was at a position where I'd signed a non-compete instead of being a waiter or a bartender uh, for that 12 months following. I just decided to switch careers, and that's when I discovered I'd been paddling my canoe in the wrong direction. So I I came back to education after a few years away, um, and have not left. Uh, even though, like I said, I've bounced around the stadium and I've gone from classroom teacher to administrator to sales uh, rep for that tech company to now consulting, and have been consulting for a number of years now. It's it, it feels like it's an ever winnowing process towards uh, one's true uh, true north, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, as you're bouncing around different seats in the stadium, and with the stage being education right now, what what are you seeing? What what's kind of the the trend right now, and maybe what's been happening recently? Sure. Well, I I think that there still needs to be an ample amount of grace offered to all adults, <laughs> regardless of their profession, but particularly in education, with regards to the impact of the last few years prior to COVID and during my five plus six years or so working in schools and districts in Indiana, even as a second career, you know, approaching midlife adult going into education and what felt like a step backwards before, you know, taking a step forwards professionally, I was already noticing the sorts of pressures that were put on classroom teachers, let alone administrators and the frustrations of families and students. And I just thought to myself back in say 2010, 2011, there's going to be a mass exodus of teachers leaving. It had already started and it it escalated through the pandemic and continues to this point today. And I know that you and I offline have had conversations around this topic, but just a couple of waypoints. The number of people I have um, encountered along the way, like if I'm presenting at a conference or or even at a school district when I was a, a sales accountant, I was just doing a demonstration of software. I'd have regularly have folks come up alongside me, professional educators, classroom teachers who know who know knew no other vocation besides being a classroom teacher, and thinking that the only thing above them was being a principal, or the only other option with their credentials was to be an administrator, and they didn't want to. Would ask me, you know, how'd you how'd you get to where you are? And that that was a pretty surprising trend for a good long while, and it seems to me as though. Educators don't understand the breadth. Classroom educators with their licenses don't understand how their credentials are, are, are valuable beyond the field in which they work, though they are constantly exposed to the people who occupy those roles. There are just plenty that they don't see, even if they're reading the articles or consuming the content of the folks that are producing it, and have plenty to share if they themselves could, could believe that that's an option for them. And that doesn't mean wholesale walking away from the students that you serve, but sometimes it's recognizing that 
you could have a bigger impact and feel more purpose if you do elevate and pull back and have uh, a role or work for an organization or start uh, your own project, or that could be its its own company. That does have by nature that sort of an impact upon dozens more or hundreds, if not thousands more people, even if it doesn't feel as, as intimate and as rewarding as seeing that light bulb go off over a seven-year-old's head when they, they grasp a concept or a teenager that you helped prevent from self-sabotage of some sort and, and steer towards graduation, which I'm laughing at because that was the sensation of purpose that I felt so many times that I don't get to see as often. Um, but when I visit schools or I get to work with school districts like I've done recently, you know, my battery gets recharged with what is the purpose of, a, of the modern teacher. And I am encouraged by some of the teaching and learning that I see happening out there. Um, so it's imperative for me to get back out there for that, to, to, so that when I do withdraw, so to speak, and work on projects that aren't on the front lines, I, I still feel like I'm not just you know screaming into the void of thought leadership or uh, pr- producing something very short-lived. Does it have any shelf life? I, I, I think as an educator, you want to know that, like that. I think it's a Chinese proverb. Forgive me if I'm misquoting this, but the you know the right time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, but the next best time is to is today. And I, I just, you know, I don't think any profession like education has as much promise for where we need to go. It's never been more imperative, especially straddling a paradigm shift like we are as artificial intelligence impacts each and every sector of our economy and every, every nation around the world concurrent with what seem to be, you know, contradictory and uh, conflicting agendas in our, in our current evolution, a phrase I find myself using all the time when I, I get frustrated with uh the decisions that are made or the, or the motivations behind them or seemingly so. And, and to me, it's, it, it's, it just comes back to that. Like that, that if we invest in education, our, our, our potential for amazing things and outcomes and the survival of our planet, the survival of our species, not to be too grandiose, but have a better chance than if we consider education a commodity. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And that's a, it's a perfect transition to, to the work that you do. So I know you recently co-wrote an article that was published by the U.S. Department of Education, and there are some pretty massive topics referenced throughout. It talks about a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. We start talking about a new Bill of Rights, obviously a massive topic. Uh, There was a sentence that talked about national security concerns raised by AI. I don't want to go into that side of it necessarily, but I'd love at a a 30,000-foot view where do you currently stand with AI and its impact on people? Sure. The, the typical metaphors of the toothpaste being out of the tube and the horse has already left the barn couldn't be more appropriate, especially in tandem. Like just throw all those those similar metaphors out there, which portends that we, we shouldn't have to embrace it. Like there's no there's no grabbing the pitchforks and Luddism uh, at this point. That, that didn't work before. Uh, prohibition never works in our current evolution. <laughs> Maybe AI will teach us differently. It's going to happen. Like the, the AI is going to happen. It has been happening for decades. And this is just the most mod, this is just the most current inflection point, which I have to believe will shrink in comparison to the next one and the, the one that follows. So let's get, let's get very nitty gritty for a second here. I am fundamentally convicted that what we will see when we think back to uh, the fall of 2022 as an inflection point that I just call the chat GPT effect, right? You could call it the open AI effect if you want, but much like facial tissues are called Kleenex or flying disks, flying flying disks we refer to as Frisbees. And I think that that's called metonymy. It might be synecdoche, but I haven't taught English in a few years. But you know, if, if you talk to your uncle and, and bring up the topic of large language models, eight out of 10 uncles aren't going to know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, uh, But if you say chat GPT, People are going to go. Yeah, I, I've heard about that. What I've never used it, or I you, know, you can't trust it. It's. I mean, the thing I want to point out though is that the Chat GPT effect is what will be you know the, on the timeline. That's that's what sent us scurrying, regardless of our work. I mean, we can focus on education, but the impact is broader than that, and we are downstream of that. Like we always are as educators with technology. We it's it's ironic to be responsible for the future as educators. Um, but always leading from behind, <laughs> you know, that is so true. Yeah. That is so true. So obviously we're in that point now. We, we can't go back. Right. We can't 
close Pandora's box. Not that it's a, a bad thing by any means, but it's out. It, the horse is out of the barn, as you said. Yeah. So let's dig a little bit closer to educators now. So what role could or should AI have in K-12 education? Sure. Um, if I remember correctly, there are like seven domains that we uh, explicated in that uh, Office of Education Technology report that came out uh, recently. But they, they divide for me into two categories, um, especially since I, I quit writing that thing six months ago. And think about all that's changed. Um, but some of the other things that I've been working on more recently have sharpened my perspective on what's happening as it applies to, to educators. And for that matter, like whatever applies to educators, for the most part, can be transferred to other sectors too. The two categories I think about are the two, the two hemispheres of AI's impact on education is one, how we do our jobs, right? The, the way that AI impacts the current stack of ed tech that professional educators interface with uh, on, on a daily basis, regardless of their role as, as teacher, administrator, supporter of a, by way of an ed tech company and offering customer support for their learning and management system or something like that. The way that we do our work as educators is about to get flipped again, again. And, and we do have change fatigue. And that is something in the employee experience that I'm very aware of um, is what that costs us. No different than running a board through a, a, a table saw um, and cutting it into strips. You could, you could try to glue those strips back together, but the kerf uh, that's, you know, what was lost in the sawdust of the saw blade is, is, is taken away. And educators lives are so fragmented that, much of the, our, our goodness as educators gets sacrificed into sawdust by every re regulatory shift, by every change to state reporting, by every new demand put upon us by those that invested in our public charter schools and what have you. And I'm just riffing off of my own experience. But, but the weariness and the fatigue that we have become accustomed to that has led us to a mass teacher exodus in this nation and, and probably around the world like a diminishing of the profession for that matter has to do with the fact that so much of our, our best selves and our, our rose colored glasses uh, that we see through our rose colored glasses when we approach education as a vocational career is that, um, you know, we have these other obligations that end up consuming our best parts that end up turning us into sawdust in ways. And, and so when I think about how AI can change that, it comes down to productivity, right? So like, um, Teachers, like one of my one of my values as a classroom teacher, and one that I espoused in my work as a sales rep for a student information system was technology. Education technology should protect instructional time. PIT protect instructional time, and the ways that we can do that are to it's no different than budgeting anything else. Eliminate expenses and, and increase income. So to protect instructional time, we need to eliminate things that that are not about student growth. And I mean that holistically, whether it's academic or non-academic standards or, or, or organically drafted goals of some sort, you know, specific learning objectives and whatever jargon we want to call it. It's just like, hey, I see where you are and I see where you need to be. Let's try this approach to getting you closer to point B. We need more and more opportunities to leverage technology to put more time back in our day. And so that I think that means uh, being ruthless with looking at the way a teacher's life is spent or time is spent during a, a typical school day, as well as those weekly and, and semester long tasks um, and requirements. And that applies to every role within the modern school district or independent school. Classroom teachers, first and foremost, let's look for ways uh, to put time back in their schedule and let's leverage technology to do that. Let's, let's, let's conjure the necessary avenues for developing professional learning and the tools necessary to, to promote aptitude going all the way back into our teacher training programs. This should be happening even as kids who are thinking about a post-secondary opportunity in education to get exposed to the idea that there are professional tools in place to make your role as a teacher feel professional. And my experience coming outside of education into it mid-career, mid-life in my 30s was that, oh my God, the tools I've been given here they're terrible. <laughs> These are, this technology is worthless to me. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I didn't go to my guidance counselor at 18 years old, Eric, and say, hey, someday I'd like to be a sales rep for a student information system. You know, I, I, I ended up taking that job because I, I saw a very clear line between the technology that was at the foundation of, of the, the, the daily operations of a, of a modern school that didn't prioritize the student's learning that didn't prioritize a teacher's uh, desire to 
to avail themselves to a public service. It, it was all about whether whether or not state reporting was accurate enough for whatever outcome legislators who write state reporting data schema need to account for the funding that they apportion to one school district versus another versus another. And so I wanted to see this. I saw that as the foundational problem. I wanted to work to solve it. So I went to work for a student information system that I was incredibly into this day and still incredibly proud of relative to the competition that's out there. And I, I think that when you start to work your way up from that foundation towards learning management and towards content specific apps, um, you're going to find that there are lots of ways in which we can put time back into a teacher's life. So productivity. On the other side of that, and one that I'm not uh, able to speak to very deeply is, since I was an English teacher, is the need for preparing students today to be successful in working with AI. And I mean that on the on one end of the spectrum as computer science uh, students and you know working in, in for the for STEM programs to have computer science offerings that have more shelf life than what we're currently offering than what are what's currently offered and to, to be able to look far enough to he, far enough ahead to, to say there is a pretty high probability that certain code skills are going to be done by the artificial intelligence that's already you know in, in development and and that coding skills might go away. There's a lot of people on either side of that right now on that argument. But what is certain is that uh, our computer science programs, and I mean exposure to, to AI from the perspective of developing emerging technologies to elementary school kids, all the way through uh, post-secondary and grad school opportunities that I have zero credentials to speak to. Um, but yeah, we, we have to do a better job of both productivity and curriculum development that address this paradigm shift that we're going through and have as much forethought and design thinking invested in them to ensure that we're not, um, we're, we're not planning, we're not painting ourselves into some corner by planning curriculum and standards um, and designing courses that, that feel interesting and novel, but aren't going to be relevant in a few years. And that's the other side of it is recognizing that we don't know what we don't know when it comes to curriculum planning as educators. And perhaps our ability to look into the crystal ball isn't as good as it was a few years back. Um, but that's okay. We just need to be adaptable and change as new things emerge. And I have noticed that I quit saying artificial intelligence and I start talking more in terms more generally about emerging technology and think that there's something to be said there about that transition from specifics to generalities and looking for the right pathways forward that have that sort of shelf life and make and create a, a, a really lasting return on our investment in education when we design curriculum for students that are anywhere from say eight years old upwards past eighteen. Uh, th those are the kids. Those are the kids I know. I'm not a higher education person, but um, I, I understand how those kids learn and what they're what they're you know what they're interested in. And uh, as long as we start thinking in terms of paradigms more so than we think in trends, more so than we think in fads, our curriculum will uh, be useful and valuable and thus our schools and the profession of education will be relevant. And that's it's a, an interesting point, thinking about paradigms instead of maybe trends or fads. So if I'm a school leader now and I'm thinking through, you'd mentioned curriculum a couple of times there, right? I'm thinking through what's the next evolution of our curriculum. And you also mentioned, we don't know what we don't know. How what does planning look like as I'm starting to figure out how do I, how do I implement a curriculum, for example, taking your, your point there, how do I plan this out for the next five years? Because I know in five years, we want to have students that are successful in the present, whatever the present is. And I have no idea what the present's going to be like in five years. That's much less likely to be able to predict than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, it really is. And I think that's where you flip the coin back to the, the first point I made in order to prognosticate better we have to leverage emerging technologies to put productivity as a priority. Administrators have to make productivity a priority for the sake of freeing up teachers to be academics. And I encountered this pre, you know, in my, in my uh, years as a classroom teacher, imagining the day when uh, we could all, like each of us could take a six month sabbatical and the sabbatical wasn't a vacation. The sabbatical was very much in, in line with what we, see in, in higher education culture, but for whatever reason, doesn't exist in K-12. It's ridiculous, you know? So um, maybe the the tumultuous, this tumultuous era <laughs> that, that let's just, I mean, you know, again, I don't know what we don't know. So 
I'm going to say that this is a plastic idea, but if we say from 2019 through 2023, we're going to look back on that as a really tumultuous era. Here are the major drivers and actors uh, that caused all of us to upheave and make radical changes in the way that we think, work, interact, prioritize, and so forth. And if that's the case, and, and maybe things settle down, maybe, maybe, let's just cross our fingers and hope that things can settle down a little bit. It'd be really great to have space for educators to rely on the technology to do the menial tasks, um, for administrators to be able to advocate at the state houses to say, hey, less compliance burden, please, but to offload as much as we can to technology so that everybody that does need to know something can while maintaining the privacy, while maintaining the sort of uh, discretion that educators know that we have to. But hopefully what's left, Eric, is that there's some margin there for doing some research and study and saying, okay, now all these things have happened and now we, now we have a better understanding of them. The novelty's worn off and we can focus our, we can focus our efforts on designing uh, you know, effective learning. That doesn't look anything like the way that we were taught or the way that we learned before. Um, and if we don't make space for that to happen, we're just going to continue this vicious cycle, I think, of spending an awful lot of time on things that don't really impact children, spending a lot of time on things that don't serve our community as well. And uh, instead, that energy is going to get diverted towards you know, proving assumptions um, through data that, again, is not academic or doesn't improve us, the culture of a learning community at all. It'd be great if we could imagine, or it'd be great if we could be comfortable with the idea that whatever, that we can't describe what those things are yet, but we can prepare uh, the environment uh, to see what fruit is born once we harvest it someday down the road um, in terms of, and I mean that in terms of just like the, what, the way our profession feels in education. Like it has a, it has a flavor, it has a feel. And when you're in a mixed crowd and uh, of, of, uh, at a party or a gathering of some sort where you meet people and you can, you know, who's an educator, like you feel it. And, and, you know, the same can be said for, for cops and others, but like, you know, we, we identify with our careers way too much. Um, but that affords us a chance to find others and, and share stories uh, and, and, and advice and opportunities with each other. And we just need more margin for that. And that's why we have to go back to the, the first point I made, which is being deliberate about asking ways that in which AI can be used uh, to make our schools more productive, to make our educators more productive, to have them not worn to the nub by the, the current job description of being a teacher, uh, department chair, curriculum director, athletic director, even uh, special education director, all the way up to the superintendent themselves. Yeah. And how, how pervasive is this idea of leading from behind within, with regard to artificial intelligence or emerging technologies, right? So how many schools, I mean, you've talked to school leaders all over the place. How many are being like proactive with emerging technologies versus how many are kind of burying their heads in the sand, waiting for somebody else to figure it out? We can make a T-chart <laughs> of school leaders, like in, of individual educators, all the way up to school corporations that on a scatter plot or a line graph or a continuum, let's say that, that on, they'd be anywhere from conservative to progressive in their approach. You know, and please hear lowercase c, lowercase p on those two, two ends of that continuum, right? Um, and within those school system, oh, I tell you what, let me say it this way. I remember my last job uh, working for a school district. I was the assistant principal for uh, the blended learning program. And um, I also headed up a lot of our professional development when it came to technology integration and noticed the politics uh, between veteran teachers and new ones, uh, between actually just one personality, a conservative ed, a professional personality and a more progressive pr professional personality. And I just sat back and I watched and it's just like, well, I see where that person's coming from and I don't want to lose their, their experience and their wisdom by making them use a device in their classroom or a, a platform with their students that they're not comfortable with. Um, it's the mental gymnastics requi required to update their practice is, uh, is a heavier lift than it is for these teachers over here that are excited about whatever comes out of uh, the next ISTE or, um, or the local or state trade show that they go to and they see a booth for a product that's got a cool name and promises to do a certain thing. And they see how to apply that for an individual student and they're excited to share it with their colleagues only to be shunned 
You know, I've seen that so, so many times. And then I, it occurred to me that Dr. Ruben Punta Dura's SAMR model that I think most educators should be familiar with at this point. Um, but if I don't screw it up here on the fly, I think it's substitution, augmentation, modification, and re redefinition. Yeah, I think that sounds right. But the whole idea being that there is a continuum uh, that can be applied to a single learning activity, a whole unit, an entire curriculum that spans traditional direct instruction all the way through to some any number of more modern approaches that reflect what learning scientists tell us about how kids learn best. And uh, it occurred to me then and there watching this, this tension between my peers that one, that personality type is not contingent upon age 100% of the time. And that, so you could have young teachers that are sticks in the mud <laughs> and you can have incredibly innovative teachers one or two years away from retirement. There's no guarantee that age alone will dictate your, your teaching style. However, if um, we take what we think about Dr. Putendura's SAMR model and apply it to people, not lessons, there's room in every learning community for that great orator. There's room in every learning community for that Shakespearean expert to pick up a, a copy of that play and extemporaneously perform parts of it while explicating what the bard meant pun mildly intended with my choice of, 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 of Shakespeare's, you know, nickname, as well as that there are, that there's, there's plenty of room for uh, students to be exposed to teachers experimenting with innovative learning practices, also born from quality research and learning sciences that open up things like real world education, um, authentic, you know, authentic assessments that are based on projects and all of these that are much more interest-based and personalized than any direct traditional uh, educator can execute realistically, not because they haven't been trained, but because there's just as much craft involved in presenting an, an amazing lecture as there is uh, in designing a very engaging project-based learning experience. You know, so I, to me, it's kind of like recognizing that there is a place for everybody and we need to honor that. It's just that we're all still moving forward together. We're not standing still and we're not leaving people behind and we're not holding people back in our profession by defending our preferred method of going about it. We just have to have an, a modicum of selflessness to, to always keep at the forefront what's best for students because people on either side of any continuum will argue that that's the point. We're just deciding together how to get there and offer multiple pathways, um, no different than we have in more modern times offered modern graduation pathways to different outcomes for our students. You know, We need to offer those that, that multivariate pathway forward for the ways that education professionals want to serve their communities one class roster or one student at a time. Yeah, I'll go back to an analogy you made at the beginning about the sawdust, right? And how over time, sawdust ends up leaving teachers. So what I'm trying to figure out in my own mind is AI is here. Emerging technologies will always continue to be emerging. How do we then, and maybe you just you said it by, by saying focus on the students, but how do you make sure we're not just chasing the next new and shiny object and we're staying grounded because with groundedness comes research, right? Research is showing in the past, this is what's been effective, but yet AI and emerging technologies exist forever and will exist forever. What's the balance? I think the balance is understanding the sorts of guardrails, checks and balances and guidelines that need to be put in place uh, every time that there is a paradigm shift. And that is me speaking front of mind from the work that I'm doing right now through uh, EdSafe, the Artificial Intelligence Alliance. You know, at EdSafe, we are fundamentally focused on making sure that while we move forward with innovation, we're doing so in a safe and ethical way and considering recent emphases upon things such as bias, right? So uh, here we are inventing these new creatures, so to speak, and I, I deliberately chose a word that would make Sam Altman uh, cringe, but we're, you know, we're developing these advanced pieces of technology to, to not just to show off, but to improve human life. Um, but you know, whether you want to say it's a double-edged sword or what have you, like the inherent risk is part of, uh, what we need in this whole living experience, not to get too wax, too philosophical, but like none of us, none of us volunteered for this experience of being in the bodies that we are and how, and, 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 and living in the world that we are born where we were, uh, brought up in the belief systems that, uh, that happened to us. So you know, at some existential crisis kind of moment, all of us, all of us have to say, 
um, oh, this is what it is. I, I kind of see uh, the sum of the parts now. And I've gone through the doubts, the doubt, like I've gone through the, I've had my own hero's journey, right? I've gone full circle and, and I see the world in wonder though. It was terrifying. And lots of my, lots of my thinking had to die along the way. It's, it's just essential to this whole experience that we, you know, this whole creation that we've all found ourselves in. When you think about that tension between even science and religion applied to artificial intelligence, it definitely brings into focus this question of like, why are we here and who are we and what happens next? Um, and so in order for us to not, I suppose, be tempted to just uh, by the next shiny thing, so to speak, um, we, we need a new context. We need new agreements. And and that that comes, I think, through going through that emotional cycle of, of, of exploration, experimentation, failure, and uh, understanding. You know, we've, we've, if you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you're in a, like in an Airbnb or a friend's house, you might stub your toe a couple of times. And like Jerry Seinfeld once said, whenever you stub your toe or whenever uh, you get hurt, whenever you experience pain, pain is just information rushing in extremely quickly. And I just, to me, I think about the pain that we're all sharing and have been sharing recently. Um, and my, my hippie self, aside from my techno, my, my, my propeller head self, my hippie self just wants to see the conversation that so many in AI aspire to around the singularity. Uh, and if you've not heard about the singularity, it's, a, it's one Google search away. That has been forecast by you know, the likes of Ray Kurzweil for decades you know, uh, so many folks watching what's happening in AI, not necessarily those developing, contributing to the algorithms or writing Python, <laughs> um, are, are, are people who are wondering if this singularity is about to, about to, to be birthed upon us where, uh, you know, we are of one mind. We do recognize that we're one creature. We don't need another James Cameron film uh, on the planet of Pandora to explain that to us, you know? So I, I think that's, that's great, but we have a longstanding history. That, that's inter that's entertaining, but we have a longstanding history, as in our current evolution, as people that yearn for a messiah, yearn for uh, another realm. Something. It's like there's a there's an intense dissatisfaction deep in our being with the way things are, uh, or as was it Emerson or Thoreau that said, uh, you know, that most most men lead lives of quiet. Uh, 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 desperation. <laughs> um, and I just, I think we just have to accept that part of ourselves that we will always survive and we will fight. And some of that means having discipline not to be distracted by the next shiny object. But in aggregate, when we all start looking at certain shiny objects and we put those pieces together, we end up with a pretty cool mirror ball. So uh, that's when the dance part, that's when the dance party can happen, Eric. But um, so like, I mean, some of us, just like some of us need to go back and be educators. Like we, we, we get an education to educate and we, uh, we, we use AI to learn AI in order to contribute to AI. So there's a symbiosis that we've not yet figured out. And right now, you know, when I take a look at the headlines and I do this on a weekly basis of what's, what's happening in mainstream artificial intelligence and, and what might it mean for us, the thing that I think about is just how dynamic that range is. Um, and it is it is as polarized as our politics. People that think that AI is going to save us or kill us uh, in the very near term. And neither is going to happen. This is a really exciting time to stay curious, not contemptuous. This is a really exciting time to experiment and to play with some of the tools that are out there, but to do so shrewdly. Like you, you've got you to look at this in terms of like, what's, what's OpenAI using my data for? And that's a whole other rabbit trail we can talk about elsewhere, but I, I'm not going to say anything new about that. Like there, there needs to be a balance of, of in order to bring, for, to bring forward what we know in order to inform where we're going. And I'm just going to bring it full circle and say, this is why like, we need our history classes. We need, our, we need educators that teach history to do so in a, in a modern progressive way, not just to make it entertaining and digestible, but to reinforce this value that no matter what we've done to ourselves uh, from the smartphone slash uh, social media slash artificial intelligence era forward to what we don't know is coming around the corner to say in our current evolution, we value where we've come to inform where we're going, period. And that's, that's directly applicable to modernize, to continuing to modernize the education profession, um, the way that, that the education profession as a public service nests into our communities writ large. 
And that's what we need from developers um, in Silicon Valley and beyond to help us continue that sort of progress forward, irregardless of economy, maybe, uh, and into a, a more pleasant existence. And I think that we can look to AI as a mirror, as a very, very high definition, clear, crystal clear, well-lit uh, environment that mirrors what we're, what who we are, but our best selves, who we need to be and, and objectively shows us the ways that we can self-improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, fascinating, fascinating response there and a multitude of ways. One of the things you said at the beginning, I want to go back to real quick, and you were talking about the guardrails, right? Because you, you had talked about um, EdSafe Alliance. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit because I try to be as pragmatic as possible on the podcast. It's like, and one of the questions I'll ask you in a little bit is, what do you want people to take away from this and implement in their own school or district? Before you answer that question, though, can you talk a little bit about those guardrails with emerging technologies? And again, if I'm a school leader, principal, district leader, superintendent, technology, whatever, how do I think about creating guardrails that work for my constituents, my students, my teachers, my adults, my community? What's that conversation sound like? So yeah, at the beginning of my teaching career, I noticed that there were different avenues for specialties and uh, certain subtopics within education that you could spend more of your time on. And maybe it had to do with your aspirations after you you know worked your way up from the classroom, perhaps, if that was you know desirable. Um, but those three avenues for me were like policy, teaching and learning, and technology. So you know you've, you've got the legislative part saying that these things have to happen and have to happen thusly. You've got what you know as a from learning sciences and from your your own training and your your teacher training program, how kids learn and how to approach that, uh, irrespective of the content or the grade level. But there are obviously details that make each of those differ from young to you know. It, from, through by way of learner variability. And thirdly, the tools that you use to do your job and to do it within um, the confines of, of legislation. The whole idea to me, it's like there's, and, and I would find oftentimes uh, friends that were amazing in one, uh, maybe two, but super rare to find people who could talk, who could be wonky and talk policy and to take what we know from learning sciences and execute it with the right tools, the right technology. Um, and so I just felt alone a lot um, in those early days as a teacher. And so when it comes to the guidelines and guardrails, I mean, we're, we're talking mostly about policy. Now, policy can be local policy uh, that that is drafted and uh, approved by a local school board all the way up to federal, right? Um, and then in between, but, but in K-12 education, it's the states that have the highest amount of authority and influence, right? So... So I think a lot about state policy and was very involved with the common core whether you think that's a great thing or a debacle, but it was n- noisy at the beginning. At the beginning of my teaching career, one of my first things was the Common Core, and I was an advocate for for that because it made it was just very sensible to me. Uh, I was new to the, new to education. I was not calcified by the po- the political um, or worn to a nub yet, yet by the job itself, and so I'm like, oh, cool, I could I could get behind this, um, and then got frustrated uh, a number of times at how it was politically weaponized. So I've not volunteered for that particular uh, violence <laughs> of testifying in front of the State Board of Education since then, but um, I have certainly uh, been working on policy on the periphery ever since. And I think from local to state to federal policy, it is absolutely fundamental. It's necessary to have those to have that stuff written down so that everybody knows what the agreements are. Everybody knows where the, the boundaries are. And as many as often as possible, the uniqueness of each child and each teacher is protected. Like no teacher should be exposed to, for making a profession, a professional choice to be a teacher. No teacher should be exposed to risks that are outside of her control, period. And uh, uh, and, and, and similarly, um, funding decisions, whether federal or state that affect a particular school or district should not cause, the, 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 there's, there should be wide margin for how, uh, how, how the creative act of, of, of teaching and, and, and the learning that transpires uh, with it are experienced by all that are involved. It's not just fulfilling, it's essential. Like we ha- you have to have, it is a creative, it's a messy creative process. And, and if, if policy is too choking, it's going to stifle learning. It's going to, in the worst case scenario, kids are going to drop out and teachers are going to leave um, to just be super, you know, matter of fact about it. But more theoretically speaking, 
and applied to this paradigm shift that we're encountering, here's what I here's what I've noticed. And and everybody, this is not in this is not inside baseball at all. When the Chat GPT effect occurred, the headlines in aggregate had a flavor of banning AI, banning Chat GPT, banning large language models because of uh, plagiarism and cheating. You know, and that's not a fix. <laughs> that is not a response. That's a reaction. To me, uh, a response in that moment is more like what I'm seeing now than six months ago, which is, hey, we had to update our acceptable use policy. Hey, uh, we sent the, we we held a convening. Uh, we, we formed a task force in our super large school district and afforded time for teachers to work with experts to figure out how to adapt. And the outcome to me is, is very clear and very succinct. Assessment redesign. Like we just have to come up with better assessments if uh, if we're concerned about plagiarism and cheating, because it's it, it, this is not the first time we've encountered something that uh, threatens the way we've always taught. It's just this is the most seismic in. I, I, I don't want to be grandiose, but this currently is the most seismic technological shift that has implications for the way we teach. And the answer is cool. I get to redesign my assessments. Finally, I've wanted to forever. Instead, I've been doing the multiple choice quizzes and tests and this or that thing that's just playing school. It's not real. Now I can do something authentic. Now I can. Now I have a chance to do this. And let that. going back to the beginning of our conversation, I'm hoping some of the tools that come out genuinely deliver on personalized learning um, so that we can see some amazing growth in students uh, and, and artifacts from their learning and ways that they themselves inspire us with their with their lack of their lack of patina and tarnish and jadedness that we <laughs> accumulate as we you know uh, be, before we slough off this mortal coal, coil to uh, quote Shakespeare once again. But uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think there's uh, a lot of I think there's a lot of promise if we've got the right guardrails in place, and that means making certain that we don't stifle innovation from the developers while keeping kids safe. Yeah, fascinating. I've got a couple of questions to end our conversation today, and I hate to let you go, but it, it's about that time. So if you can go back, Eric, and give yourself advice before you began you know, serving in education in whatever capacity, what would that advice be? Well, the best time to plant a tree. <laughs> I, I really genuinely wish I became an educator. I wanted to be an educator at 18. That's like uh, the best advice that I could give myself is, you know, in that in that sense is just don't hesitate. Don't don't wait for the confirmation that once something, once you're already confirmed, if you, if you already know what you want to do, not to mention, like, I, I wish I'd been a little bit more cavalier with switching careers earlier. You know, how that applies to education for me is like, I wish teachers that think that they're stuck wouldn't be, wouldn't think that. And they would, they would stay. And, and, and that's what brings me back to being curious over contemptuous, something my therapist taught me years ago. You got to be more, you got to opt. You've got to choose to be curious or else you'll just, default to, to contempt. You can be mad at your students. You can be mad at parents, your principal, your superintendent, uh, state superintendent. <laughs> I mean, the, there's no, there's no shortage of people you can direct your negative energy towards by nature. Like you're going to want to do it. Like we know this from comments on Amazon for crying out loud. You're going to want, you're going to want to complain in our current evolution. And I'd, I'd very much love it if, if my former self could have stayed curious enough to take some risks that I, that I didn't. And I have to give credit to a couple of folks that pushed me into education uh, for, for doing that. They took a risk and said, I really think that you're a fit for this profession, Eric. And I thought, my goodness. Uh, and once I did make the switch and I wrote, I wrote those people back, uh, that was a very satisfying thing. I even took my old English teacher out, to, out for pizza, you know? And so I may have been a late bloomer um, in terms of my work in education, uh, but boy, has it been fun to flourish? And I would love to see more more educators use what they've learned along the way and and either figure out how how to stay in the classroom and teach in a way that makes them feel exuberant or for for superintendents to look and principals and department chairs to look for ways to to promote that from within, you know, to to invest in their in their staff in that capacity, not just not, I mean, because we've got tons of encouraging, inspiring professional development works and keynote messages out there, tons, 
but to quietly convert that into a, a fulfilling purpose in ways that we've just not had the margin to do. So some of the ways that we can are by employing that technology that does give us productivity, lobbying for, for sensible legislation and policy work locally, state and federally, that um, that give us the margin for, for living our values as educators uh, and doing so as in front of the kids as examples and in front of our peers as examples of what it means to be a member of humanity right now and vocationally be responsible for education, which ultimately means, you know, helping folks eliminate the experience of, of pain when information has to rush in very quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What's one action or strategy that you hope every school leader takes away from this conversation and applies in their own building, their own district, their own lives? And trust your teachers uh, with as much as you're, you're able to afford across all different resources. Because if you invest in your teachers, they will take care of your kids. And if you can't trust the teachers that you have to invest in your kids, if you empower them to do so, there are some difficult conversations that need to take place, whether it's with your own position and your own personal growth as a leader or with those educators that might need uh, re- reposition themselves. And I think just having the courage to take action sooner than later, recognizing the, the, the sort of exponential effect that, we, that our decisions have in, in education is the best for everybody. Mm-hmm. What's a celebration you've recently experienced? Uh, other than publishing that paper, um, <laughs> amazing, by the way, <laughs> man. Well, uh, I, I it was an honor to be involved in it for sure. Um, and and that sense of like longitudinal projects reaching completion is definitely categorically top of my list. You know, but aside from that, I I, I celebrate like uh, getting to summer and uh, overcoming some health issues so that I can enjoy the great outdoors like I'm about to go do. Good. Good for you. And how can people get a hold of you if they want to, Eric? LinkedIn. Uh, I mean, you can search my name um, and and you can find things that I've written along the way, but hit me up on LinkedIn. I, I'm not on Facebook anymore uh, as a result of just wanting to, to live a cleaner mental life. And I'm sure. so much happier not being in, in, embedded in social media like I once was, but I'm a daily checker in on, on LinkedIn. Yeah. I'll include your link in the notes as well. Perfect. Well, Eric, it's such a pleasure talking with you today about AI, about life in general. Uh, thank you for all you're doing for us. It's certainly appreciated. Oh my gosh, Eric, thank you for what you're doing for, for the entire field and anybody who stumbles into your podcast. I had such a blast uh, talking to you today. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day.